everybody to another episode of Andy Here's the 80s, a special bonus episode this week. Uh, we're taking some listener requests that people sent in. I uh, want to, of course, shout out my co-host Aaron Keck. Hello. Uh, we're here again to discover more and more music of the 1980s. Uh, you know, we I want to thank everybody out there for listening to season one. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, we went through and, you know, I, I like to try and fill in my musical blind spots, uh, you know, with this show. It was a lot of stuff I'd never heard before, and uh, people have sent in stuff that I still had not heard uh, even from after that. So it was pretty cool to see all the different stuff that came in, and we've got a good variety of stuff uh, coming in this week. And I'm excited about this week because some of several of the artists that we're going to be listening to are artists that like not only have I not heard the album I had not heard of the artist until we got these recommendations so I was I was excited to give these a listen yeah definitely I I was in the same boat you know if people would recommend something I'd be like oh I'm I'm glad you recommend it because I literally never heard of it before (laughs) Uh, and it might not have heard of it you know otherwise yeah ever right Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, so th- this was a lot of fun uh, to listen to all these records, and uh, we've got five of them here for you today. Uh, if you have any, any recommendations at home, you can send them into Andy Here's the 80s at gmail.com. That's 80s spelled out, E-I-G-H-T-I-E-S at gmail. Or uh, send, them in, send them to me on Twitter at Andy Hears It. Uh, the first one uh, of this episode, we're going to hear from a band called The Killing Joke, uh, which was sent in by uh, Rick from Atlanta. Uh, says it's one of his personal favorite post-punk records and one that I definitely couldn't skip after uh, listening to our post-punk episode. So if this is one of his favorite post-punk records, how does it rank, like, overall? Is he, like, just... Does he hate post-punk and this is just the best? Or, like, is he actually uh, a post-punk I think he's, fan? I think he's a post-punk fan because he mentioned um, uh, Gang of Four was another uh, okay. record that he really enjoyed. Uh and so to kind of put it in the timeline of the ones that we heard, uh, this one came out, this is their debut album, self-titled, came out October of 1980, uh, which was just a few months after Closer by Joy Division, which we heard, and about six months before uh, Solid Gold, the Gang of Four record. Uh, so, you know, right around that, you know, 1980, that's the prime post-punk kind of area. These guys are from London, of course, formed in 1978. Uh, signed to an indie label called EG Records. Uh, and uh, let's take a listen to the first song on the record. Uh, this is Requiem. Kind of see how they sound. Thank you. 
So that's the first track off of the self-titled Killing Joke record. Uh, Aaron, what did you think? Because I know that post the post-punk episode wasn't your favorite one. Post-punk was it. not my favorite. Post-punk is not my favorite. I think of the five albums that we're going to listen to this week, this was not only my favorite but like easily my favorite i was wow i was interested in it because i'm like man i've never heard of this band in any capacity before i heard the killing joke and i immediately thought of the batman comic like that's where my mind went uh-huh. but i sat down i started listening to this and it was fantastic like the music was really was really really good uh it was uh, it was it was several different i heard several different influences this was this was mm-hmm. almost like cuz there's there's kind of an industrialness to it so craftwork isn't the band that i'm thinking of but it's like a, an industrial band uh decided to sit down one weekend and just listen to the clash nonstop and then record an album immediately after that like it's it's these these yeah. influences that kind of come together in a really really cool way and i loved it yeah it's it was a cool record and it does you know it's funny coming out you know within a year or so of the joy division record gang of mm-hmm. four i think there's you can hear elements of it but it's still it's kind of impressive how much of their own thing they kind of made yeah it's especially with like the the kind of grimy synth and it still has that you know danceable noise that post-punk is uh, kind of billed as having uh but i think they did it yeah they did a good job it's has that clash political bend to it mm-hmm. it has a grimy dirty like drum and bass sound uh uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I listened to it a whole bunch. Yeah, War Dance is great. Uh, Requiem is great. Is Bloodsport the Bloodsport the 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 uh, just the dance song with no lyrics? Yeah, just at the end of the at the end of side A. Yeah, that's a that is a mm-hmm. great song just in and of itself. Not political, obviously, because no lyrics, right. but uh, just a great dance number in the midst of this yeah. very kind of dense and political album but it's also super danceable as well yeah really cool yeah and these guys actually they have continued to play together with some slight lineup changes throughout the years but uh, they've been still playing as recently as 2018 so i mean they put out a album even in 2015 which Mm -hmm. is their 15th so they they stuck around for a long time, and so that you, was actually their original lineup that got back together for that last album. So you do a lot of research on these bands. What is their story? This is one of those bands that I think probably should be more popular and well known than they are. Is there? Uh, do we know why? Uh, you know, I didn't really see any kind of like, you know, explanation as to why they weren't more well known or or anything like that. I think they had their kind of cult following especially in england and then mm-hmm. you know just they just maintained a steady level of you know small fandom for throughout all these years and you know that sustained them for the most part yeah but yeah you know that's what it's that's what's so fun about this episode is i i'm so glad people are sending these in because otherwise i maybe never would have even heard of it yeah yeah like we're starting out like we were started out at the beginning of season one with albums that like everyone has listened to or at least is familiar with and now like we've gotten to the point where okay here's an album that very few people are familiar with and even fewer have heard but this is one that should be more popular than Mm -hmm. it is so yeah i was excited about this i'm gonna get increasingly sour on some of these albums as we get further into the episode (laughs) but this one i loved yeah well yeah i'm glad we could start with a high note yeah right 
And I did, yeah, definitely everybody who liked the post-punk episode and even, and obviously even some who didn't definitely go check this out. Cause it's just good, like good rock and roll music. As yeah. They say. Yeah. Definitely better than ending on a high note. You, you definitely don't want to end on a high note. Absolutely. <laughs> no, definitely not. Yeah. Who, why would you, why would anybody even try? <laughs> uh, the, the next uh, suggestion we've got in, um, was sent in from Jenny K on Twitter. Uh, this was uh, Ricky Lee Jones' album Pirates. Uh, this was her second album. came out July of 1981. Uh, Jenny was very enthusiastic recommending this one. This was one of her favorite albums of all time. She says here that uh, she loves the stories that the songs tell, the metaphors, the imagery, unusual song structure, dynamic range. And I think she's right. All of those elements are on this record. Yeah. Uh, let me play a little bit of uh, the title track, Pirates. This is track five on the album, and then we'll talk a little more about it. So when I was listening to this, uh, the two names I kind of was putting together in my head was kind of like a Joni Mitchell meets Carol King kind of. Yes. That's yeah. What, that's what I was thinking. That's I was thinking literally the exact same thing, like more heavy on the Joni <laughs> Mitchell, but I started getting a little of Carol King with just the the storytelling. Yeah, I mm-hmm. and and I was I was excited also about listening to this album when I started listening to it because I know Ricky Lee Jones. I don't know much about her, and I mainly know her from like Chucky's in Love and the like the, the kind of the hits that she had, which is you know it's a fine song, but it's not one that I would you know stop and listen to if I'm flipping through stations on the radio and it came on this album like takes her music to a whole nother level. And I don't like it as much as I liked the killing joke only because jazzy's not my thing. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's just a personal preference thing, but the quality of the music is fantastic. And it's like a whole nother level with Ricky Lee Jones that I wasn't really familiar with. Pirates is a good song. I think my, my favorite off of this is the opening track, which is we belong together. 
yeah that that's definitely a great one and i love the way that builds mm-hmm. uh it's a, a little bit too long of a build for me to play on the show i thought but uh that's kind of why i went with pirates but that one right, even right. also in that span of the song you know it goes from it kind of goes in the opposite direction it starts off that real upbeat you know with the horns and everything and then it kind of mellows out mm-hmm. uh which is kind of yeah like the inverse of the opening track yeah yeah exactly but this is a great just very relaxed record that i found putting on in the morning was great uh and this is somebody I'd never heard of, actually. I, I wasn't familiar with her uh, before this, so I was happy to hear this. And it's funny, even when I picked it up at the record store where I got the CD, uh, the guy at the counter was like, oh, yeah, I really like this one. I liked it better than the first one. I was like, okay, great. There's nice. another recommendation. Then, yeah, so, then you know then you know you've know, got uh, you've got good people recommending. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. Uh, she, Ricky Lee Jones, uh, she... Let's see here. She had moved to California when she was 18 and basically just started playing around uh, and songwriting uh, around the Venice Beach area, started meeting other musicians, uh, including Tom Waits, who she would end up dating for several years and then broke up prior to this record, which is kind of which influenced a lot of it. It's a bit of a breakup record. A little bit. But not like a bitter a breakup bit. record. Like she still no, like she still not. kept up a friendship with Tom Waits for years afterwards, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And and even uh somebody else replied uh on Twitter talking about this that uh the first song especially he mentions that it's kind of a unique love song in that uh, as they say uh it tells the entire story, the joy, yearning, heartbreak all at once, which yes. I think kind of sums up the whole record. Yeah. I agree with that. And that's I mean those are the those are the great relationship songs, right? Cuz like every relationship is going to mm-hmm. have elements of that. So if you've got a if you've got a song or an album that's just joy or just heartbreak, then that's fine, but it's not complete, right? You've got to have the completeness and I think you're right. I think this album has it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so that was really fun. Uh, Something again I had never heard of, but was, was glad yeah, to hear right. it. Like that, at least I, I'm familiar enough with Ricky Lee Jones to be like, okay, yeah, Ricky Lee Jones, I get it. I know where she's coming from. So it didn't hit me as a huge, huge surprise. Still a surprise because I wasn't expecting like that again, like Joni Mitchell, Carol King, like level of quality, but uh, absolutely has it here. But at least like I, I wasn't as. Uh, I, I wasn't as much of a neophyte with this album as I was with The Killing <laughs> Joke or the one that I think we're going to uh, cover next, which is another band that I was totally unfamiliar with. Uh, but Ricky Lee Jones, like, he's got a reputation that I was familiar with. This was just like a whole new thing for me, though. Yeah. And she also continued to record and tour for, like, until modern times. I mean, she's still going. She just released yeah, even going, this right? year. Yeah. Uh, yeah, a cover album uh, called Kicks of songs from collection of songs from the 50s through the 70s. So she's just she's still out there making music. She never stopped, really. Yeah. Nor should she. Uh, but yeah, talent the, like that. No, never. Yeah, never. I, hopefully she's <laughs> going on for years to come. You must never stop, Ricky Lee Jones. <laughs> Wait, please, we insist. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the next one up. Uh, this is an album called The Glove from the bla- from the band. Oh, no, sorry. The band is The Glove, and the album is called Blue Sunshine. This is the one and only album from this group. Uh, came out in August of 1983. Uh, this was actually recommended by uh, Michael Azarad, the author of the book that we referenced a lot in this season uh, before, uh, Our Band Could Be Your Life, among many other music books. Uh, I w- he 
audiobook of which is now available now. Awesome. Uh, but yeah, he, I tweeted about the audiobook and he sent back this recommendation, uh, which is a collaboration between uh, Robert Smith of The Cure and Stephen Severin of The Banshees. This was a side project they put together, uh, basically right in the middle of each of their careers in those other bands. Uh, and they brought along uh, an unknown then and basically still now singer, Jeanette Landry, uh, who was a dancer and a friend of Budgie's from uh, the Banshees, and had her do all the vocals, uh, save for two songs that uh, Robert Smith still sung. Uh, but yeah, this was another one that was a complete unknown. Yeah. And, and because the, and because the vocalist is, is someone like it's, it doesn't feel like a Cure album. It doesn't feel like a, a Susie and the Banshees album. Like this is, I mean, if, if, if for no other reason than the vocals, like this is its own thing. Oh yeah, totally. Uh, as, let's hear, uh, the first track called Like an Animal, uh, from Blue Sunshine. There's definitely a Cure vibe to it, mm -hmm. I would say. Uh, I think, you know, even if you didn't know that Robert Smith was involved, I think you would still point to that sound, I think. Uh, but it is a little more, and possibly, or not just because of the vocals, but it's a little more freewheeling, a little more psychedelic in nature. Uh, but it's a really cool record. Yeah, it's a it's a cool project. I think it still for me has the feel of a side project. Like I really liked mm -hmm. the the Cure albums that we listened to. I really liked Susie and the Banshees when we listened to them. Uh, after listening to this album, I want to go back and listen to the Cure and Susie and the Banshees again because now I've got the taste for it again. But I don't right. think I think I'm I think I'm done with the glove. I think I listened to it. I'm <laughs> I'm happy with it. Uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, now I just want to go back to to the main stuff. Uh -huh. And to put it into context here, it came out in 1983. Uh, for The Cure, 1982's Pornography was right before this, mm -hmm. and 1984's The Top was afterwards. Uh, for Susie and the Banshees, Kiss in the Dream House in 82, and Hyena in 84. So this was right smack in the middle of all those. And uh, Juju, the album we listened to from Susie and the Banshees, was uh, from 1981. Uh, but yeah, it definitely is a side project 
it has that vibe of here's where we're going to play around and experiment yes in ways that maybe we wouldn't on the other records uh and so there are certainly it does have more of an element of oh this is cool i don't know if i'm going to hear it listen to it every day but it is cool to have as just like a relic yeah I do, I think this is one of my favorite weeks. Like, even for the albums that I'm not as big a fan of versus others, Mm -hmm. like, I just appreciate the fact that we're doing this podcast and people are coming at us and saying, oh, you should listen to this, oh, you should listen to that. And just the, the availability or the catalog of great music that's available from the 80s that people are still pulling from and drawing from is just so vast that you don't even necessarily can't even necessarily be aware of the existence of all of it and it's still like you're still digging and you're still finding awesome stuff yeah totally that's kind of what's so cool when i even was first conceiving of it is like you know 80s has that such a stereotypical you know sound to it but there's obviously you can go in so many different directions and hear so many different things that you can't just pin it all in one box you know yeah these are all and this this week is such a great showcase for that because these are all five incredibly different records. Yeah, not that not that all five of them are are obscure per se because no some of some the of them two, are some of them yeah. sold more copies than others. But uh, but yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, before we move on, Jeanette Landry would uh, go on to record another album with a band called Kiss That in 1986. Uh, but that was kind of the extent of her music career. She would choreograph music videos for a lot of bands after that. Uh, and then there was a 2014 interview with her on postpunk.com where uh, for basically the last decade, she's just been painting. So she has like a, a whole studio now. She's doing fine art paintings. Nice. So, uh, yeah, pretty cool career to have. <laughs> Are we going to hear that band next week then? <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll be doing a episode entirely. We'll go track by track on the Kiss of That record. There you uh, go. That'll be the focus of, of the next episode. Love it. But until then, uh, we have, yeah, there, the next one, it's this kind of obscure a band. A little bit, right? They're, yeah, they're from L.A. They put out their debut album, July 1987. Uh, G- Goons, Goons and Rose. oh, sorry, Guns and Roses is the there name of the band. Go, yes. Yeah, the, uh, apostrophe, for destruction. the apostrophe is silent. Yeah, it, it always throws me off. Yeah. There was a hot second when this band was obscure. Like the album came out and it didn't take right away. It was what was mm-hmm. it a couple of months really before before bands really or before uh, uh listeners really started picking up on it and I like I grew up in the 80s. I remember kind of becoming familiar with Guns N' Roses like it had hit the the zeitgeist enough that 8-year-old me uh, was mm-hmm. aware of it really not until I think the later 80s like 88 maybe even 89 so it starts to catch on in late 87 but it just keeps growing and growing and growing over the next couple of years after that yeah totally and this was sent in from uh, Tyler from Asheville who says it's probably one of the best rock and roll albums of all time mm-hmm. which at least 30 other million people would probably agree with that it sold incredibly <laughs> well, well either that or they just bought everything and, and Appetite for Destruction <laughs> yeah. is in this huge collection of CDs that just goes on for mountains mm-hmm. yeah there's probably a good amount of that uh, but yeah like you said it didn't catch on instantly I and mean, these guys were playing in kind of LA club scenes bouncing around different bands uh, in the mid to late 80s, released this in 87, 
And really, it wasn't until like they actually started releasing the songs that we know as the huge hits. Like they didn't get released as singles immediately. Uh, Welcome to the Jungle wasn't released till October of '87. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sweet Child of Mine August of '88, and Paradise City in November of '88. So yeah, it was really not until like '88, basically, when it finally caught fire. Yeah. I remember uh, when Guns N' Roses was the scary band. Like there was again like a couple of years in the late 80s early 90s when like parents were warning their kids, you know, stay away from that Guns N' Roses. They're going to lead you down a, a down a, a dark path of hedonism and destruction. <laughs> but don't you want to take them down where the grass is green and the girls are pretty? That, that, it sounds, sounds great. nice. It sounds nice, but don't go. Don't go. It's a trap. You're going to wind up well, in the jungle. <laughs> oh, yeah. And you're going to die. I mean, I guess they do, exactly, they do leave right? with that. Yeah. <laughs> and he's, and he's going to be totally fine with it. He's just going to laugh at you while it's happening. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, well, let's take a listen to the other monster hit from this one. Uh, we'll hear a little bit of Sweet Child of Mine. that the guitar riff from that is probably the most memorable but for me when i what i really started to appreciate this song was when it was in i think it was maybe guitar hero 2 when they you could play two player and split up the guitar and bass songs Uh or the guitar and bass tracks and playing the bass in this song actually made me appreciate it a lot more yeah i think the rhythm section in in guns and roses is probably overlooked uh I mean, for obvious reasons, with Axl Rose and Slash up front, they're the ones grabbing all the attention. But I think that this this song has a great bass line that I am always listening to when I hear this song now. It's a great bass line. It's a great riff. It's it's a great melody with great lyrics. And like everyone talks about the, the opening riff from the song, but let's also talk about Axl Rose's vocals, which build and build and build and culminate in that 
like final scream at the end, which is also one of the great moments in in rock music history. I think at the end of Sweet Child of Mine, when he does the when he does the line one more time and just extends it out for fifteen seconds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the whole song ends with that great breakdown. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's. I mean, I think the songs you know from this one are still great. I think. Yeah. That. And like listening to the problem. listening to the album again, I honestly like I'm not a big fan of most of the songs on this album. There's 12 songs on the mm-hmm. album. Maybe I like four or five of them, but it kind of doesn't matter because those four or five are so great. And even the songs yeah. that I don't really get into, I'm very much like Ricky Lee Jones. Like, okay, Jazzy's not my thing, so I'm not going to go back and listen to that a whole bunch of times. But you can still tell the quality, and you can still tell with Guns N' Roses like whether you like this particular song or not you're listening to mm-hmm. one of the greatest guitarists of all time and one of the greatest bassists of all time and one of the greatest vocalists slash frontmen of all time and they've all like serendipitously managed to come together and form this super group and it's just one of those things you have to treasure about rock music is every so often this happens where the best and the best and the best all meet and say, hey, let's let's do something together. And it just clicks. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and you know, the fir- the single that they led with for this album was It's So Easy, which I think kind of also explains why it didn't catch on immediately, because I, I, like that's one of the songs that I think is the most forgettable from mm-hmm. the album. It's just kind of very generic, and I don't think it really stands out like some of the other ones do. But, I agree with and, that. and yes, the lesser songs on this one, I think, all just kind of run together. But I think the the smart thing they do is, as an as an album, those three major songs all are kind of sprinkled throughout. You know, it's not front loaded with the hits, and then you're like halfway through the rest of it, you're like, why am I still listening? I should just start <laughs> it over. But yeah, I said I said four or five songs there, but honestly, Welcome to the Jungle, Paradise City, Sweet Child of Mine, I'm good after those three. Like Mr. Mm-hmm. Brownstone is the other kind of classic, and I'm not even a I'm not even a huge fan of that song. It's those three, and then and then yeah. it's the rest for me. Yeah, I think th- those three are undeniable. I think the rest are kind of like when we listen to Thriller, right? I mean, the hits from that are so huge yes. that all the other songs kind of bl- just kind of run together. Yeah. But Except how many songs problem, are on the, Thriller? Seven, nine? Well, yeah, exactly. The difference is there's only like maybe one or two of those on Thriller, whereas there's yes. five or six on Appetite. Yeah, but but I think uh, I think it definitely shows why you know it was so popular was the, uh, you know on the strength of those three songs alone, and they would go on to of course release their next two. The um, they had, they had an album in between that, but then the, the other next major ones, uh, Use Your Illusion 1 and 2 in 1991. Mm. Uh, and then w- one or two more after that, they kind of disappeared for a while, released the like famously, what's the word? Like the, the album Chinese Democracy came out, what, like 2010 or something was like one of the biggest bombs of all time. Was it 2010? As as, like, I remember. I remember just the buildup for that, like, oh, Chinese democracy, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, mm-hmm. and then it came, and then, I don't know, I don't know what was going on in 2009 or 2010, maybe we were all so busy worrying about Obamacare or something, but yeah. <laughs> maybe, yeah, I don't know, but it, the, I think, you know, it's kind of crazy to look at this debut and how huge it is, and then they've kind of carried on the strength of just that for i think for the rest of their career yeah. almost right and and use your and illusion I, as well and i think 
Like to, to say, oh, there's there's really only three great songs on this album and then bring in the other couple from Use Your Illusion that are great and say, well, like Guns mm-hmm. N' Roses, what's their reputation? They've got six or seven great songs. How few bands, even the great ones, like actually manage to have a career where they really have five or six or seven just transcendently great songs. And Guns N' Roses managed to do it in the space of five years basically like putting all those Mm -hmm. together like that's an achievement yeah definitely i think too that it it, you know i kind of ignored them partially as a kid also because they kind of their axel kind of had a rivalry with uh, kurt cobain for a while and so Mm. i was like obviously in the nirvana camp and so i just kind of ignored guns and roses after that uh you know, for, for better or for worse, but uh, <laughs> I'm glad that I came back and listened to this because I, th- I do think this one does uh, does hold up. Yeah. I think of, and I don't know how fair this is uh, in, in either, how fair or how correct or how accurate this is, but I've always in my head seen Guns N' Roses as the transition band between stereotypical 80s hair metal and nirvana Mm -hmm. like guns and roses is that midpoint where you know where it's going it's halfway there living on a prayer hasn't gotten there yet but we're moving in that Mm -hmm. direction like we're moving away from the fluffy hair metal stuff from the from the mid to late 80s We've got Guns N' Roses. They're moving in that grunge direction. They're not there yet, but there's there's more substance behind what they're doing versus these other bands. And then Nirvana's going to come along a couple of years later and just keep going down that road. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I'd be willing to bet you know they played a lot of the same clubs as like Jane's Addiction probably did. You know, yeah, in, that, in yeah. the same scene. I think there's overlap there, and probably. I think that what kind of helps this hold up uh, as opposed to all the kind of other '80s like hair bands is that it does sound, it has more classic rock feel to it. I think it's, it kind of, even though it's obviously still like 80s sex, drugs, rock and roll, I think it's, the musicianship is more grounded in more like 60s, 70s kind of rock. And that's what also I think helps carry it through the 80s excess and into the 90s where they, you can be a Led Zeppelin fan and love Guns N' Roses. You can be a Yes fan and love Guns N' Roses. Yeah, definitely. You don't have uh, now the to be, next, but it helps. Oh, you don't have to be, certainly, but I think there's there's a Venn diagram there to draw. <laughs> uh, the next one, another uh, L.A. artist, we have Ice-T's debut album, Ryan Pays, from July of 1987, which uh, actually, same, look at that same month as uh, Appetite for Destruction. And again, a precursor, and again, a precursor of what's going to come later, because this is, this is, uh, this launches gangster rap, right? Or yeah, totally. Participates this is, or in the yes. launching of gangster rap. Yeah, one of certainly one of certainly the landmark records for that. Uh, recommended by Matt from LA, who says that this is among his favorite hip hop albums, saying Ice T helped pioneer gangster rap and social awareness. The this is the first, definitely one of the first gangster rap records. Uh, this was released in 1987. Like I said, his. Uh, song six in the morning was released as a single the year before which showcased definitely that gangster rap storytelling style that he would develop and that a lot of other artists would copy uh, but you think about it in kind of the alongside the albums we've listened to here uh, this is a year before nwa's debut uh, the same month as eric b and rock games paid in full um, and the year before the um, public enemy record that we listened to also 
So yeah, definitely before a lot of the artists who would go on to, to create similar styles. Uh, let's take a listen to the intro song uh, that goes into the Rhyme Pays song, uh, where he just kind of lays it out. You hear the whole history of Ice-T up until this point. A child was born in the East one day. Moved to the West Coast after his parents passed away. Never understood his fascination with rhymes or beats and poetry. He was considered elite. Became a young gangster in the streets of LA. Lost connection with his true roots far away. But no matter the job or crime, he never lost his hardcore obsession to rhyme. New York's hip-hop movement broke loose. DJs cut records. Raps had the juice. Since busting rhymes was his natural thing, he was crowned the West Coast MC King. But after his inauguration, there was a rush of whack rappers with one intention to crush this master rapper and take his throne. A simple job. He had no crew, he stood all alone, alone, Assassins came in groups of one through five. With rats, no mortal MC could survive. But he showed no mercy. He racked bloodthirsty. Battling from Friday on through to Thursday. Never losing a bout, never ending in doubt. Every confrontation, KO, knockout. On his never-ending journey to the T.O.P., the L.A. player, M.C. Aaron, what did you think about this one? Uh, the song or the album? <laughs> uh, both. First one, okay. then the other, I think. Okay, on the on the song, uh, I think the song is fine. I'm surprised you went with that one instead of Six in the Morning. Uh, you know, I think that I just love the the way th- that he tells the story uh, leading up in this one. And then okay. the first verse of Ryan Pays. I, I think Six in the Morning is the, is the would be the go-to, but I don't know, something about the way... This sets the stage for the album. I really like. Okay. I'm not a big fan of this album. And I go back to the same thing that I've said about about 80s hip-hop in previous episodes that I know what comes later. So Mm -hmm. 
I go back to I go back to 80s hip hop and so often and there are exceptions you mentioned Eric B and Rakim's Paid in Full I really like that album NWA like that spectacular there's a couple of other exceptions too but for the most part I listen to 80s hip hop the same way I listen to like rock and roll from the early 50s like it's sure, great yeah. it's pioneering it's innovative. It's doing something that no one had ever even conceived of doing before, let alone had done before. But I know that in five years, so many different artists are going to come along, including including Ice-T himself. Like So many artists are going to mm-hmm. come along and eclipse this and take hip-hop in all new directions and do what Ice-T is doing, but do it better and do it with more complexity. Yeah. Uh, that when I listen to this, I'm like, okay, this is this is a historical artifact for me, more mm-hmm. than more than an album that I really like. The one song exception to this is not Six in the Morning, but uh, Squeeze the Trigger, which is the the song that ends the album. That mm-hmm. song I think holds up. That song I really like. The rest of the album yeah, I, th- I think is is more historical. I think you're right, and yeah, Squeeze the Trigger definitely holds up. I think that's where a lot of the if you listen to that, that's an obvious precursor too to NWA and Public yes. Enemy, and uh, that that's probably the song that sonically and lyrically holds up the best on this record. I think. Yeah, uh, and it's un, it's totally know, he, unfair to Ice T to say this or or any or mm-hmm. any '80s hip hop artist, but because like a lot of the stuff from later, like the '90s and the 2000s. A lot of the stuff that I think eclipses this album is going to end up being forgettable stuff. Like I was thinking about this in the context of cars. Like the Model T mm-hmm. comes out in 1907 or whatever, and it's innovative, it's new, it's transcendent, it's it's completely it opens up the world in a way that nothing had ever done before. But if you're buying mm-hmm. a car in the 21st century, you're not going to buy a Model T. You're going to buy like a Dodge Stratus. Like the Dodge Stratus is a better <laughs> car than the Model T, even though kind of historically it's crap. Like it's kind of a forgettable vehicle, but it's still better than the Model T. And I think of I think of this album as the model the model Ice T, right? Like it's the it's the <laughs> yeah. innovator, it's the founder, it's the pioneer. Uh, later on, uh, albums and, and hip hop artists are going to transcend this and eclipse it and move the the genre down the road and, and further progress. Those artists might be the Dodge Stratuses of hip hop, but the albums mm-hmm. like put them side by side are still quality wise better than than what came out in the eighties. People are going to yeah. disagree with me, I've, but that's fine. Well, yeah, there's no doubt that this is a landmark record. Yeah. That put next to you know the production values of something that like you said even comes out a couple years later it doesn't quite sound the way that you know hip-hop can sound you know having said all that if i'm if i'm making a a best of 80s hip-hop with maybe 10 songs on it squeeze the trigger is is possibly top five yeah i think it it would close out that playlist just as well as the album Uh, yeah I, i think this is definitely I, th- I think it was fun to listen to, but it is, like you said, it's a it's a historical document as much as it is a, uh, you know, something you throw on in the car anymore. But I, I enjoyed hearing it. I, I liked hearing the things that, you know, hearing what becomes an obvious influence for a lot of people. And if yes. I had heard this in 1987 when it came out, yeah, I totally would have been, been all over it probably. Uh, yeah. But and and uh, I mean, 
and we were talking about social awareness as well. Like this is mm-hmm. this is the other thing with with hip hop in the eighties. Say what you will, one way or the other. Like hip hop in the eighties is socially aware and offering real substantive social commentary in a way that, with the possible exception of of hardcore punk uh no one else is even again thinking about doing mm-hmm. and i think that's great right yeah i mean there's yeah like there's that reason in, in the first episode of season one we it was the clash and public enemy they were the yes. ones talking about it yeah exactly. Uh, and i think you know ice t he's definitely talking about police violence he's definitely talking about representation on television displaying violence uh and he even mentions he said he calls it Ryan pays a because it pays the bills, but B because that's how he and a lot of other people manage to escape, uh, you know, bad situations is through yep. their rhymes and using the music as a way to escape, not promote violence, but to escape from it. And I think that's lost on a lot of people. Uh, but then it does also have like many other eighties, not just hip hop, but media in general has some pretty unfortunate homophobia in it as well. Yeah. That's all I got. <laughs> I know. <laughs> But, uh, you know, I think that was it was a fun way to hear some bonus uh, albums that we hadn't heard before. Uh, And then I will give you a little sneak preview of uh, what we've got in store for season two. Uh, I am planning right now on getting it ready for the spring. Uh, So hopefully we'll launch season two during that time. And what uh, we're planning on doing is... Uh, rather than genres and years and stuff, I was thinking each episode will be focused on a different artist. Uh, so we'll be taking some artists, uh, most of which we hadn't heard before, a couple that I felt I wanted to revisit. Uh, and we're just going to go album by album through their 80s discography. Uh, most of them are ones whose the bulk of their careers, or at least a lot of the high points, were in the 80s. Uh, so that'll be something to look out for. They've got... About 12 or so episodes planned right now. I'm not going to tell you what the artists are quite yet, but uh, that'll be a surprise. And also because I haven't fully narrowed it down yet. Uh, But uh, I think then after that, that'll probably be the last 80s season that we'll do, I think. Okay. Um, So Andy's going to hear something else after that? Is that the. Andy's going to hear something else after that. All right. All right. I'm also looking forward then, to I'm looking I'm also looking forward to if Axl Rose ever gets wind of the fact that you referred to Appetite for Destruction as a bonus album uh just now <laughs> what his reaction yeah. to that is going to be <laughs> I don't know. Uh my guess is uh, he's probably glad somebody's still talking about him in a positive <laughs> way. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I can't see inside his head. Yeah, no, a few people can, and that that's part of the problem, I think. <laughs> but, you know, if we could just get in there and figure out what he's thinking. We love you, Axel. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, yeah, that'll that'll do it for this uh, special episode of uh, Andy Hears the 80s. Uh, we heard all your listener recommendations this week, from Ice-T to Guns N' Roses, Ricky Lee Jones, Killing Joke, The Glove. Uh, it sounds to me like we heard the 80s. We heard the 80s. Thanks, Aaron. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to Andy Here's the 80s, and special thanks to Rick, Jenny Kay, Sim Barr, Michael Azarad, Tyler, and Matt. Really enjoyed listening to all these recommendations. They're all great albums. I'm glad they're added to my collection now. Uh, you can send in your recommendations and comments to andyhearsthe80s at gmail.com. That's 80s spelled out, E-I-G-H-T-I-E-S at gmail.com, uh, or on Twitter at Andy Hears It. 
stay tuned for season two of the show coming in the spring. I've even got a special kickoff event planned that you're not going to want to miss. Keep on spreading the word about the show, rate and review it wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, show notes for the episode, as well as every other episode, can be found at acton.wordpress.com. That's A-C-T-N.wordpress.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you soon. <laughs>